Hello, Charlie Gladstone here, and welcome back to my Mavericks podcast. This Skippy, I've got two Labradors, and they spend, we've got six dogs in fact, but the two Labradors spend most of their time with me, and um, they will not leave me alone. And can you hear them sniffing there? They're finding the microphone very interesting. Please go and lie down. Good dogs. Leave me alone. I'm recording a podcast. Anyway, sorry. Welcome back to my Mavericks podcast. This is the second part of three parts of my Good Life Experience specials. It's a series of conversations with participants and guests at the Good Life Experience this year. Next year, you may have noticed that we are actually adding a third day, which is a smaller day right at the beginning and night of the festival. And we're calling that the Good Life Experiment. We're going to limit it to just a few hundred people. And we're going to try and make it a day of super intimate conversations and talks and workshops and classes, all kicked off with um, a feast that we hope everyone will attend or a series of feasts and an opening night party. So that's something that's been occupying us over the last few days, but I just thought I'd tell you about this. Anyway, moving swiftly on, away from Labradors and back to the Good Life experience. The first of these chats today is with Tom Hunt. Tom Hunt is a chef who has essentially focused the majority of his career on sustainability and the avoidance of food waste. And he hosted a really well attended and absolutely fascinating panel at this year's Good Life Experience. So here is Tom Hunt. My name's Tom Hunt. Um, I'm here to talk about food sustainability. And I've been on the campfire stage doing a quick demonstration about my philosophy route for eating, um, which is a zero waste philosophy. And then I just ran a sustainability panel with some interesting speakers in the speaker's corner tent. On the campfire, on the fire pit today, I cooked three different dishes that define or describe my food sustainability philosophy route for eating. The three key points of route for eating are to eat for pleasure, eat whole foods and eat the best food you can. For eat the best food you can, I made a soda bread file using fresh spelt grains, which I milled on stage and turned into this beautiful bread which we cooked on the coals of the fire. Then eat whole foods, I made a seasonal salad. I went scrumping and picked a few windfall apples from the orchard and a pumpkin, grilled them on the fire with some plums and served them with some smoked quinoa and red quinoa, both from Hodmadods, and also some different herbs and things, all cooked from root to fruit. Uh, wasting absolutely nothing. And then for the final demo, which is, or describes the kind of most important part of my sustainability philosophy, eat for pleasure, I made some chocolate truffles with a very simple water ganache using this incredible chocolate from Pump Street chocolate that's from a single estate. So you can taste the actual origin and biodiversity of that ingredient. Yeah, I mean, I love cooking on fire. Um, it's dramatic, it's, um, yeah, it's exotic, it's, it's a brilliant way to cook vegetables, which often people don't think of, um, and what a great space to do it. Like, there's an, a beautiful, audience, engaged audience, um, and all sitting on bales, and it's really kind of lovely atmosphere. So I just came from our sustainability panel where we had an incredible, um, esteemed range of speakers from 
well, all over the world. We had uh, Paul Noonan from the Chef's Manifesto, who works for the World Food Programme, UN. Um, we had Trina Han Hanneman from Copenhagen, who's written 19 books and cares deeply about sustainability and organic food. Douglas McMaster from Silo, a zero waste restaurant. Damien Clisby from Petersham Nurseries and Nick Saltmarsh from Hodman Dodds. And we basically talked about the food system and climate change and how it's all connected. What did I find most inspiring? I think to see the panel for me was very inspiring because there was this collection of, or collective of incredible thinkers, movers and shakers who are really changing the food system and kind of progressively moving towards a kind of more sustainable way of life. And the audience was totally engaged and on board with that. And it felt like we all kind of learned something from each other within that discussion. The Good Life Experience is a true family festival where everyone feels safe and together. And it's like a kind of, it, it feels like Caroline and Charlie have opened their back, their back garden to their friends and that's what they've done. And it's, it's an incredible atmosphere of friendly and lovely people. Next up is someone who I've been trying to get to do this podcast and indeed come to the Good Life Experience for a couple of years now. It's a guy called Joshua Coombs. I first met Joshua back in June of 2017 when he and I both spoke at the Do Lectures down in South Wales, which were wonderful. Joshua started a, an organisation called Do Something for Nothing and he's probably best known for being the hairdresser to the homeless. He's an incredibly charismatic and inspiring character who is transforming lives through what I suppose are essentially small gestures of kindness. So here is Joshua Coombs. It's Joshua Coombs on the mic here at Good Life. And I, um, I was speaking yesterday, Saturday, today I was speaking on Friday in the Speaker's Corner tent about what I do, which is do something for nothing. So what I do is called Do Something For Nothing, and this is a hashtag. It's being used by lots of people uh, globally. It's a movement of people to use what you love doing to go and help somebody in your community, to connect with somebody is a better way of phrasing it. So my Do Something For Nothing is going to cut hair for people on the street. Um, I cut hair for homeless people in different cities all over the world now. Um, I work with different brands, different companies, but also charities, and um, I travel. Most of my time is spent actually haircutting on the street, but also working out ways of getting more people involved. My, my initial inspiration really came from a quest for something that felt real in my life, something that felt more human. I was um, seeing lots of people in the street, humans who were being ignored, people who no doubt had stories that I didn't know yet, and um, it was my way to connect more with that. Um, to be honest, it came from a feeling of feeling very helpless about a lot of things and wanting to feel empowered again, and actually I just found that through like a small act, like a haircut. So, um, so my talk yesterday really focuses on time and using time as a, a commodity, because it is, it's a universal commodity that I trade in all the time. When you don't have anything, it's what you're left with. And, my talk's based around that and also the stories of the people I meet on the street and vicariously people can get a better view at homelessness as a whole and in a more international perspective. Wait, look, I got my hands in hay right now. There's a little dog next to me. I'm all sorts of sights and smells, but the truth is it's about people. 
I'd say it's about people, mate. We're all here for the same reason, which is we want to be able to experience each other's lives and share. And I think it's important to have these moments. It's really important to take the time to go, you know what? Today, I'm just going to try and talk to as many people as I can. And I'm just going to try and just just, just go out and, um, and be with one another in that way. Um, so for me, that's how it feels. I feel like this is truly the word experience at the end of good life. Everyone's good life is different, but the experience, I think, is fundamental for everyone here. Yeah, you know, actually, I, I, I guess I'd talk. I'm so... Um, about the moment I guess like the the right now I've just been watching Tom Herbert I saw him at the uh, uh, the do lectures last year so I got to know him he's cooking up some mean sourdough there's some music I want to see tonight um, I saw actually yesterday this beautiful three piece who was they were singing like French Cajun traditional music so um, lots going on here mate I'm very very excited to see some more as you may know, dogs are a big part of the good life experience. We are probably the only significant festival, or festival of significant size, I should say, that allows dogs to come to the festival. Caroline and my theory, shared by Stephen Kerris, I think, is that the whole point of our festival is that you should be able to come with whoever you want. So if you want to bring your dog, great. If you want to bring your children, great. If you want to bring your grandparents, great. Your mother and father, whatever. I mean, the essence of family life is really doing things together. And for a lot of people, bringing their dog to whatever it is they're going to is an important thing. And I think that we've really connected with dog owners. Um, and by the way, all the dogs are beautifully behaved, so you don't have to love dogs. But we've, of course, put some things on for dogs. And we have a big dog show. And that is all put together by the brilliant Canine Circus. So to tell you a bit about what we're doing today, uh, we do uh, quite short workshops for people who've brought their dogs to the festival because it's a super dog-friendly festival, the only one I think. Uh, and the first year I came here, I, they had a dog show and I said to Charlie, we could do more than this. I have a circus, so let's bring that. And he said, great, let's do it. So we train for about 30 minutes. We teach the dogs about five tricks, unrolling a yoga mat with their nose and going through a hoop and stuff like that. Then we pop little rostra on their necks, join it all together uh, and say that we've created a circus and it's hilarious fun. <laughs> I used to be a kid's nanny uh, and then I retrained uh, and took a degree in dog behavior. Um, and I just wanted to create something fun that would get people to do a little bit more training with their dogs in the hope that it would avoid too many behavioural issues developing uh, once they sort of finish puppy class and stuff. I also live in London, so there's a lot of other fun things people could do than go to a dog class. So it needed to be interesting and a little bit different. And in the age of Instagram, of course, it's very photo-worthy when your dog's posing on a bike wearing a ruff. People love it. So they come, they enjoy it. Um, and actually I find that it really builds kind of relationship between the owner and the dog, which a lot of dog training is not that good at doing. I think there is something special about having dogs at a festival, actually. It really like changes the vibe, I think. And even if you haven't got a dog, it just seems to really cheer people up to see all the dogs running around and having a good time. And trying to summarise the good life experience to someone who's never been here is quite tricky. I mean, it's family friendly. It is dog friendly. Everyone is friendly. There's so much great stuff to do from axe throwing to wild swimming, brilliant food. Um, really good music, but not in an overwhelming way. It's, everything's there and you can do it if you want to and you can not do it and it's fine to watch and your dog can join the circus and your kids can take their shoes off and run feral through the fields the whole weekend and everyone's just relaxed and smiley and it's great fun. Isabella Tree came to us um, through Macmillan. Her book about rewilding a patch of land 
in England is absolutely fascinating and she's clearly captured the imagination of a lot of people. A number of people in the weeks leading up to the Good Life Experience asked me when Izzy Tree was speaking um, and you can feel that kind of um, electricity in the air around her project. It hasn't been uncontroversial but here she is. I'm Isabella Tree and I was talking about my book Wilding, The Return of Nature to a British Farm in the Academy Tent just over here next to the Idler Bookshop. So really my book is about um, the story of my husband and I, um, uh, the three and a half thousand acres that we inherited from his grandparents in the 1980s in West Sussex. And for the first 17 years of our lives, we, we were farmers. We were arable, intensive arable and dairy farmers. And after 17 years of doing everything we possibly could to make the farming business profitable on our very heavy Sussex clay, uh, we, we hit the buffers. And in about 2000, we realized we couldn't go on anymore. We had this massive overdraft, just could not make ends meet on, on, our, on our very unsustainable soil. So we, we decided to turn the whole estate over to nature. And that has kind of spawned this amazing sort of rewilding project, which has, has had so many successes and really taken us all by surprise, I think. We've had turtle doves coming back, nightingales, all five UK species of owl, We've got 13 out of the 17 UK species of bat. Um, amazing number of, of rare and endangered species, as well as just wildlife, the more common species, just rocketing. So it's been a really thrilling experiment to be involved in. And it's now sort of become uh, really influential, I think, in, in conservation circles. And we never would never imagined that at the beginning of, of the project. My, my husband and I had always been interested in nature and we, we would travel the ends of the earth to, to, to see it. So we'd go to Africa. My, my husband grew up in Africa and then in Australia. Um, we never thought about having wildlife in our own backyard. We just assumed that it didn't belong there because we'd never seen it there. But of course, you know, we can have you know, just as many exotic and beautiful and wonderful and exciting creatures as they have in Africa or in Indonesia or anywhere. It's just that we have lost them. And so what we've shown is that if you put the right drivers in place, we've introduced free-roaming animals, and this is a really powerful way of encouraging dynamism back into the landscape again. If you allow those drivers free reign, if you allow them to take the driving seat and you just sit back and relax and let them do the job for you, extraordinary things start to happen. And that's, I think, been the greatest lesson to us is, is that nature will bounce back given half a chance. And if you, if you, if you just put the slightest you know, um, incentive in there for nature to come back, it's like pulling a, a glider up into the sky. Um, things just start to fly. Um, but we'd love to see NEP one day connected with the sea. The sea's only about 15 miles as the turtle dove flies from us. Um, and it would be wonderful to feel that our, our old English longhorn cattle, our proxy for the aurochs, is browsing on sallow on NEP one day, and then a few days later it's eating seaweed on shore and beach the next. You know, So it would be wonderful to have this sense that there is a bit of a migration happening again, that there really is movement in the landscape. And the, the more connected the landscape can be, um, the, the more exciting those natural processes are that start happening and the more life will come back. It's my first time um, at, the, at the, this festival. It's absolutely amazing. I'm loving it. The food is delicious. The cocktails are knockout. And um, it's just amazing. Everywhere you go, there's something absolutely extraordinary happening. I've just had an amazing conversation with 
with somebody who's made the most incredible um, outside hot tubs. I don't know if you've seen them, really beautiful. I would absolutely love to have one of those. You, you can be here all day and, it's, and, and there's something to suit your changing mood throughout the day. Um, it's, it's, it's incredibly inspiring and just so nice to people. Wherever you're standing in a queue, you know, you, you end up chatting to the person next to you and then there's incredible coincidences and, you know, it's great. A really lovely atmosphere. Jeff Towns is a friend of the Good Life Experience who I think has been with us every year. With his Dylan's Mobile Bookshop, he travels the length of Britain, mainly in Wales, educating people by giving away free books and selling the odd book. He is a man of enormous character and really deep, interesting intellect, if you know what I mean. What he does is his own version of what a bookshop should be. He's incredibly original, and I think he's a man who very much marches to his own beat. But anyway, here is Jeff. My name's Jeff Towns. I've been a bookseller for 50 years. Now I'm a mobile bookseller, and every year I bring my mobile bookstore, Dylan's Mobile Bookstore, to The Good Life. Uh, Keris is an old friend, and through Keris and Steve, I met Charlie. And um, we love The Good Life. Uh, we sell books here, we have fun and I do a talk every year at the Court by the River stage. I grew up in the East End of London, my mother was Welsh, I went to college in Cardiff, I was going to be a teacher. I didn't teach, I met my wife, went to Swansea, decided to open a bookshop because I've always loved books. Because Swansea is where Dylan Thomas was born, I called it Dylan's Bookstore. So for 50 years I had bookshops, but I used to be a serious antiquarian bookseller and go to America and sell rare books in New York and Boston, San Francisco, London, did book fairs all over the place. And then when I was about 65, I suppose, I thought I've been doing it long enough. Uh, and so I kind of was going to sort of retire, but booksellers can't retire. I still had thousands and thousands of books in storerooms and over the place. So I thought, I oh, know, it'd be nice to have a mobile bookstore. So I hunted on the internet and I found an ex-Wakefield County Council mobile library, fully shelved with a little wash basin in it and a counter where the librarians used to give the books. And we just rebranded it. I went up to, uh, I bought it up in Harrogate uh, about nearly 10 years ago now. And we rebranded it and we take it to festivals and craft markets and arts events. And uh, I've got a team, I have a, I've got a resident poet, I've got a resident artist, I've got sometimes conjurers. We, we just take a team out and, uh, and just have fun around. We did used to go at a guy, he can't come with him, who used to take vintage typewriters and we just put them out and kids would come and type poems on it. They'd never seen a typewriter. And letter by letter they'd type a poem and then we'd give them a copy of it. And, and then their parents had never seen typewriters either, so they sat and wrote a poem as well. So we have a lot of fun with the bus. And uh, this is, for me, this is a sort of last festival of the year and it's always a fantastic way to round it off because it's, it's, you know, I do Latitude and I do Green Man, I do these other things. And I have good fun there, but this is, is something really special, I think. Um, so, so today at Coop by the River, at uh, the unearthly hour of 9.30, but 25 really interested people came to listen. I talked about a poet called Edward Thomas, who it was his scenery dance here. Very sadly, he died on the first day of the Battle of Arras. So he's known as a, 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 a war poet, although his poems are much more about nature and other things, but he, he died at, at war. So I talked, it was called Edward Thomas and Wales, and he, he, like me, 
He was born in London to Welsh parents and he yearned all his life to come back to Wales and it, inf it uh, inf infused what he wrote and how he looked at things. That, that Welshness has been overlooked and there's been lots of books written about him, especially because it's coming up to Armistice Day and there's a lot of talk about the First World War. And, not celebrating it, but you know, it's commemorating the armistice. Uh, and I just felt that I wanted to uh, to re-stress how much he loved Wales. So I wrote a book about it. It's coming out in November, but today we did a talk based on it. And uh, I have an actor with me, a wonderful Welsh actor called Kerry Murphy, and he recites the, when I re re refer to things, he recites that. The amazing thing about the good life is that it brings all these different things together quite naturally and organically. And uh, here we are, we've got Cuban cigar makers here, and then we got, yesterday we had DJ 78 spinning shellac, and then you got my book bus with a blind date book club and all sorts of odds and ends. And they're just, they, they, they get along with one another as if it was always meant to be. People can't, they say, what's the connection between Cuban cigars and uh, books? Friendship, you know, and the fact that cigars are good and books are good. So uh, there's nothing not to like about it. Next up is Laura of the brilliant Paper Moon, who are one of a number of screen printers on site over the course of the weekend. So my name's Laura Kate, um, and I'm from the Paper Moon print studio. Um, we're based in Liverpool. At the festival, we're doing screen printing and we're doing lino printing. So we are offering drop-in sessions for both the lino printing and the screen printing, where people get to come in at any point in the festival um, and print a design, an existing design that we've either pre-exposed onto a screen for the screen printing or pre-cut out of the lino for the lino printing. We're also offering more in-depth workshops for both the screen printing and the lino. Um, for the screen printing, you can get to print a four-colour C YMK um, Good Life screen print and for the lino printing you get to actually cut design and cut out your own lino um, design and print it and you get to take the lino away with you as well. I think in recent years there's kind of been a resurgence of people appreciating handmade things and also people wanting to meet the people that are making those things and I think that's really important and I think when I first started when I first graduated from uni it was in 2008 so it was a credit crunch so it was hard you thought that people were never going to want to part with their money for something that was a bit more expensive a bit more kind of personal handmade but actually it's been the opposite I think people are just they just want something that is completely original to support um, to support independence and I think this festival just does that perfectly I think it's also just getting back to nature and I think it fits the site I think everything just ties in beautifully and it must work because I've never worked at an event where I've met lovelier people in terms of the customers and kind of the people that we're doing the workshops with. Next we have Mark Shaler. Mark is a friend of the Good Life Experience. This is the third time he's spoken and a friend of this podcast. You may remember my earlier conversation with him. And at the Good Life Experience this year, he debuted his brand new speech, which was called Kindness is a competitive advantage and why the apprentice is shit. And he got the fullest and most electrically charged tent of the weekend. It was very much standing room only inside and outside the tent. And that was because Mark is just one of the great speakers that we have on the sort of circuit at the moment. Here's Mark. So um, my name's Mark Shaler and I'm at the Good Life Experience speaking on the Academy stage about how kindness is not only 
the right thing to do to treat people, but also can help businesses become more competitive and, and, and grow faster. I work with companies to improve what they do and to, to kind of find a, a, a better future than the one they were headed for. And I summarize it really as I help, I help big companies think small and I help small companies think big. And so a lot of my clients are people that you would not necessarily hold up as being kind of like world leaders in ethics or sustainability, the stuff I used to work almost solely in, but they really need to change because Patagonia don't need Mark Shaler, whereas those other companies really do. And when you dig deep into an organization like that, it's surprising how many good and amazing people work for them that are trying to realign the organization. So the talk today was all around how you grow a, a business properly and how the culture of, of business for a long time has been very male. I never used these words actually earlier, I maybe should have done, I maybe should have called it. It's been very masculine, it's been very toughen up, uh, um, what's the word, well, if, if, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, and all of these kind of like thrusting macho bits, bollocks, and actually there's no kindness in any of that. That's, that's all about humiliation and, and bullying, shouting at someone louder to do, to do more in the same time. That's not how you motivate people. That's not how you increase productivity. So today's was, was a real kind of like plea for a little kindness within the way we treat each other, a big bit of kindness about how we treat ourselves. So it's okay to go to bed early and to not stay up doing your KPI reports. It's okay to not be in the office at 6.30 in the morning. By all means, work really hard, but actually choose the time where that works or doesn't work for you. And, and it was also a plea to be kinder to the planet as well. And, I, and this is not a, a, a pleady thing because, well, it is a pleady thing. I've just said it was a plea, but it's not a, um, a preachy thing. But if you just look at, at those classic elements of that Marxist equation of production that Karl Marx developed however many years ago, raw materials plus labor equals product plus profit plus waste. If you look at the raw materials and the, and the waste side of that equation, they've been, they've been massively undervalued. And we're now in a world where there isn't, a way has gone away. There's nowhere to put our stuff. It is bubbling up into the oceans. 90% of all ocean plastic comes from um, 10 rivers. And those 10 rivers are not in, in Europe. They're, they're in Asia and they're in um, India and they're in the Far East. And, and the problem there is not the plastic, it's the way people use it. And, and that, that might be our plastic, by the way. We just export it for, in inverted commas, recycling. So, so we, need to, we can solve this problem much easier than we think we can. Um, so being kind to the planet and being able to you know, create circular economy business models and circular economy solutions, spent a lot of time working in circular economy. It, it really matters, you know, because away has gone away. The raw materials are increasingly monopolized by large power blocks like China, who own um, access to, it depends on who you speak to, between 65 and 93% of, of all the rare earths on the planet. 
Uh, that's true. If you look at China's investment in Africa, it's absolutely staggering. One of the Chinese dialects is the second most commonly spoken, spoken language in Liberia because they've got all of the copper mining rights in Liberia. They own the means of production um, in terms of materials, but also in terms of, of, of labor. So if we're to create a world that is, that is um, a little bit more equitable, and if we're to create businesses in the UK, this is not a plea for Brexit, actually far from it, the actual opposite in my, from my politics. But if we're to create a, a, a growth scenario in the UK for, for manufacturing, we need to look at how we can do this differently. And these two things come together beautifully. So the circular economy is all about recycling things, keeping, keeping things going for longer. Um, my favorite circular economy strategy is longevity. So buy the best bag you can afford, keep it going for as long as you can, repair it as much as you can. Where's the business benefit to that? Well, you don't sell it, you lease it. So you begin to change the business model and, and, we're, and we're doing that. And if you bought a super cheap pair of jeans for whatever it is, 55 pounds, they might last you four years. If you've got no money, you don't have 55 pounds, the same jeans will cost you 95 pounds from a catalogue, but you've got no money, so you tick the box that says, I'll pay monthly, weekly, and over four years, you will pay more than it costs for those really expensive pair of jeans that are guaranteed for life. The problem is the big expensive jeans makers are still trying to sell the jeans, not, not lease the jeans, because they don't want to become a bank. So that kind of kindness, the, the, the attention that we need to apply to ourselves, we also need to apply to what we do and how we do it. And if we're to attract the best talent in the world, because that's going to be a big challenge, then we need to create cultures that are supportive rather than destructive within industry. So um, the Good Life Experience is one of my favourite festivals for lots and lots of reasons. Firstly, I know a lot of the people, I've been coming three years, so I know a lot of the people who are here. There's whatever, 5,000 people here. Um, and I see the same faces and they come and say hello and I absolutely love that. It feels like a community. And um, additionally to that, I uh, absolutely love the vibe. So it's small enough to feel like a family event, um, but it's big enough to have enough things kicking off. Um, and it's about having a better relationship with nature. It's about having a better relationship with community, with, with others. And it's also about maybe rediscovering some of those skills, having a quick go on the pole lathe, having a little, little play around in some of the art rooms. It's about understanding play and experimentation. And we often, there's some crackling available over there. And, um, and, and I think that that is underrated. It's great to go and see bands and some amazing performers here and some amazing speakers, but actually give me time to play. And that's what Good Life does for me. It's brilliant, long may it continue. And leading on from Mark, here are Living Alive. My name's Elle. And I'm Rupert. And we run an organization called Living Alive and our talk um, at the Good Life this year has been called All Wonder and Wild Stargazing and it's on the Academy stage. So our little company, Living Alive, um, we create primarily nature-based events and experiences that really focus on eliciting the emotions of awe and wonder and um, helping people really grasp more of a sense of interconnection and belonging to this amazing planet that we find ourselves on. And more often than not, that's out in really beautiful wild places, swimming in rivers or um, sleeping out under the stars and 
walking are really yeah, beautiful mountains. Today, the, the whole um, point of the talk was to really try and blow people's minds, so to actually have an experience of awe, because one of the, um, the things that's really important to us is, um, is this emotion of awe. Um, and so we, we try and elicit that um, in the audience by showing some of the most amazing images that have ever been taken, uh, astronomical images that have ever been taken. Um, and then we go into the emerging research into, into awe um, that's coming out of the University of, of uh, California, Berkeley. How at they've the been proving all of these really diverse and wide-ranging benefits that the emotion of awe has to offer. So there's you know, physi physiological and psychological benefits, but also benefits for how we interact in the world and our relationships as, with the world as a whole. So, you know, that these experiences of awe are... are are actually proven to be good for you. It's like permission to go out and yeah. really put yourself in the way of the most incredible stuff and, and get that sense of vastness and connection that experiences of awe and wonder can bring. So there's two trips in France that we're hoping to run next summer and one's in um, the French Pyrenees. So just um, on the Mediterranean end of the Pyrenees on the French side, um, there's this um, really amazing little valley that we found in this venue that's... Um, run in a really ecologically sound way. We take up people up into the mountains and do things like, you know, getting up early to go up to the, one of the ridges to watch the sunrise and really get that sense of, you know, like the night turning into day and like the, the awe and wonder that comes with that or, or walking in the mountains and really getting up close with the wildflowers and, and the mountain berries. And we've got these um, like school kid uh, microscopes that we take with us in our backpacks and <laughs> get people like peering into these like totally awe-inspiring wildflowers and then you know end the day at the wild hot springs which is where like you know 70 degree water is bubbling up out of the earth and you can and just sit in the forest and the steam's rising up and, and as the sun goes down and so yeah in Scotland we go to an amazing place called Noidart which is a, a peninsula that's kind of really cut off from the rest of the, the UK, actually. Um, so you go up to Fort William and then a train up to Malague and then a boat across to the peninsula. And then from there, where there's no, literally no cell reception or Wi-Fi anywhere, you walk out of the village up into what's called the rough bounds in between Loch Nevis and Loch Horn, between Loch uh, Heaven and Hell. One thing that we really like to do with all the trips um, uh, as well as the stargazing that we were, you know, Elle was talking about some of the things we do on the, in the trips in France. I mean, the stargazing that we talked about today in this kind of cosmic perspective, we always try to bring in. But there's another aspect to it as well, which is to do with um, offering people the space and the time to spend time on their own, um, which is something that we just don't really do very often at all. It might seem a bit odd, really, to just, you know, invite people away on a trip and then be like, right, off you go. But it's not really that simple because... You know, there's actually a really carefully um, uh, facilitated process around doing that so people feel really safe physically and psychologically to go out and do something that is actually really not a common thing to do. Yeah, so it's our, it's our first visit to a good life and we're really blown away how carefully curated it is and the interesting and inspiring mix of people but also the hands-on stuff and loads of little different opportunities for people to connect to nature in their own different ways, which totally resonates with what we're into, but yeah, amazing food and the music and, and, and all the speakers and yeah, we've totally enjoyed being here, it's been great. And here's a little bit of the With Love project, that's Chris and Rob, who you may know from a previous uh, edition of this podcast. They were speaking for the second time at the Good Life Experience. I'm a massive fan of what they're doing. 
Um, so my name's Rob <coughs> Evans. Um, I'm one half of the With Love Project and we've been on at the Academy stage today talking about the power of stories. And my name's Chris Roberts. I'm the other half of With Love. So um, essentially, the With Love Project, we started um, as a personal project. Our initial idea was to go and meet five British fashion producers, people making stuff here in the UK, and then celebrate their stories in a little booklet that we could send out essentially as a marketing piece. Um, we started going to visit people and really enjoyed it. Totally forgot about the marketing piece. Um, and three years later, we visited over 70 British producers, whether in food and drink or um, craft or fashion, um, and we've put together two hardback books. So the, the talk was today was all about the power of stories and how a story can elevate a brand and a story is something that can become shareable. And we realised that um, what we'd been doing was creating our own story as well. So we, the talk today was all about the people that we've met and it was all about their stories and inadvertently it became about our story as well. You can add to that one. So there's a, there's a number of ways that you can elevate brands and tell brand stories and two of the ways that we focus on really is uh, films, so brand films and brand campaigns, so photography. Most of the work that we do is, is film and photography based and it's, it's just about finding the essence of what we're trying to sell and talk about talk about the, the business or the product in in the best way that becomes shareable and, and create something that's hopefully different in the marketplace that that people stand up and pay attention to. I think I think these days people are um, people are really interested in provenance and we get to work with people who actually have stories to tell. Because there's loads of brands out there who, who who create stories that aren't necessarily real. We we work with people who've got a, you know got a story to tell that we can we can bring that out. So we we're going to go swimming. That's our next plan. Um, hopefully, shake away the cobwebs um, and maybe lose the hangovers that we've got. I love listening to the talks as well. I think just just getting an insight into people's stories is, is really good. And you always leave these places with loads of ideas and loads of new things that you want to try and do and things that you need to see. I've got a to-do list. I've started this year, because you speak to so many people, and when you get back on Monday, there's that many things that you've forgotten. So I've written everything down this year. So I've got a long list of things that I need to check out when I get back. And finally, Valentine Warner. Probably the most engaged person that we have with the festival, perhaps along with Tom Herbert. Val has been every single year, um, and he is an astonishingly passionate advocate of cooking outdoors and sustainable food and cooking with game and foraging and hunting and all of the things that are central to the campfire sessions. He also runs the brilliant Heppel Gin Company, which is very much active at the festival, and has a project with Alex Pohl, our blacksmith, and Ed Hunt, the knife maker. So Val is very much in the festival. He's running his gin bar, he's performing, he performs a couple of times, and he's also working with his 
friends on the forge making knives. So here is Val Warner. My name's Valentine Warner. I'm, uh, what am I doing here? Well, I've done three different things today. Um, I've done a cooking demo, um, cooking over fire, my favorite way to cook. Um, cooking is uh, um, cooking over fire. Fire smoke is an ingredient. Um, cooking very simple food. I'm more likely to be talking to um, Spanish widows about their octopus recipes. I'm a kind of international grandmother in my cooking approach. Um, my distillery is here um, selling Heppel gin. Um, this afternoon I uh, interviewed Isabella Tree, um, who runs, runs this wonderful project called the uh, Nep Estate, which is this massive rewilding project and farm in Sussex. So um, that's three hats. And the fourth hat is that I'm working with um, Poland Hunt, uh, blacksmith and knife maker. And um, so it seems logical that we all need fire. It's intrinsic to all three of our trades. Um, so we thought that um, I should cook on the forge while they're making a knife. I've, I, I think I, I bit everything as a child. Um, table legs, people, oil paint. You know, I understood the world through my mouth, really. Um, I think Warners, we're so kind of very food-obsessed family. We kind of divide the world into edible or inedible. Both parents were great cooks. I traveled a lot with my father, who was in the foreign office, so I ate in a lot of different countries. And, um, and that was really, it was always there. And then when I left art college, because I, um, I was a portrait painter and realized that I didn't have any, um, uh, I, uh, you know, I turned it, handed in my commissions as and when I chose. So I, I, I made my, I needed a routine. And so, because I spent so much time thinking of food, I thought it was a logical place for me to go. So I actually went into it to make myself work harder. My inspirations in my early, I think nature, I grew up in nature. Um, it's, it's one of the things I'm most passionate about. It's our default setting. We're living in a very mad time where it's kind of commerce versus nature. Um, and I grew up in rural Dorset in the 70s um, with a father who was always making rosehip cough syrup or picking mushrooms on a dairy farm where I went to collect the milk every night. And then, you know, so, and the countryside was a place that, so, you know, gave you cultivated food or you could go and pick blackberries and mushrooms. Um, the good life experience, I've been coming for four years. I've tried to be as helpful as possible, getting, you know, helping them get chefs. And I, I love the Gladstone family. I think they're very, very generous people. Um, they really want everyone to have a good time. There's always interesting people here. I mean, to hang out with Roger Phillips, he's one of my heroes. Um, if anyone listening to this doesn't know who he is, he's an amazing mushroom and wild food expert. And it's just a really nice place of people who want to see things done properly. It's kind, it's gentle, you've got caught by the river. So you could have a very folky festival, it's just folky, but then you've got belting music coming from Jeff Barrett, who owned Heavenly Recordings. So it's an incredible mixture of everything. Really good craft, good food brilliant music. What's coming up for me? Heppel has got some new spirits coming out. We've got a spirit coming out made of Douglas fir pine needles um, and something else coming out in November. I've been doing a lot of work in Norway. We've got, um, I'm working with a private hotel in the Arctic Circle, putting lots of events on up there, lots of cooking and stuff. And um, we're going to start filming, start our own little channel because it's, um, I'm exasperated by food television. Generally, I think it's moronic, actually. Um, who gives a shit about cupcakes? And I don't really want to watch competitions all the time. And there's a lot of very fragile food practices in this world, which is really about the story rather than the food. And those are the things that I want to make programs about. So I think we are in the age of craft and do it yourself. And that is the good life experience. So that's it for part two of my Good Life Experience special. I hope you enjoyed it. 
Thank you very much to my friend Jim Friend for conducting all of these interviews and editing them so beautifully and coming to Wales and being so enthusiastic. But most of all, thank you very much for your support of the Good Life Experience and your support of this podcast and just for being so damn nice. See you soon. Bye. Thank you.